Good morning, everybody. Welcome. So good to see you. If we don't know each other, I'm sure we'll get to be friends because I just have a ton of friends. I love to have friends. And it's not my total identity. As we think about this series that we've been in, if you've been with us for the last four weeks, we've talked about different ways that our identity kind of shifts or drifts or moves this and what the truth is that we've got to anchor to. The first thing we talked about was this idea, this spiritual identity, that we are not what we do and we're not what we've done, but we're who God calls us to be and to live into. We talked about the fact that our identity doesn't come from what others have said about us or the labels that have been placed on us, sometimes from birth or very young, but instead Jesus calls us to new places that bring healing and hope. Last week we talked about the the reality, the, the difficult reality that sometimes we experience things in our life that are so tragic, they really cause us to be stuck in an identity crisis and how God calls us to resurrection and life, to new, to new life, to new places. And that is never, ever a question of God's love for us. It's an opportunity for God to be glorified. And so we've got to walk into these places that are dead and call out new life like Jesus does. And so today we look at this this reality that even when we do all those things, sometimes we still drift. Even when we find our place, our restoration life, this place of restored life where We are not what we do, we are not what we've done, we're not what we have, and we're not what others say about us. We are identified as people in Christ. That's what Christian means, Christ one. That is the the truest sense of what Christian means. And some of us say, well, now that I have that, then I'm just good. But the fact is, we, we move, we drift. I discovered this with a conversation with a girl named Amy uh, a couple years ago. Before we had an office in a ministry center, I spent a lot of time at coffee shops. And so this one particular coffee shop that I was working at this particular day and this particular month and this particular year, I got to know this lady named Amy. And Amy was a tough, smart cookie. She had spent pretty much all of her teens and 20s saying, I don't think there's a God, and I don't think I need anyone else in my life to give me any kind of sense of identity or any kind of sense of connection. In fact, I'll just be fine on my own. And she had some friends and had some acquaintances through her 20s. And at the end of her 20s, though, she was at the bar with some friends, and she met a guy named Mike. And Mike kind of came from this very similar background as well. And so they became mutual friends, basically not liking each other. No relation to the Mike and Amy over there. Just figure that out. Um, (laughs) Sorry. And so you can imagine in their mutual dislike of marriage and their mutual dislike of really needing people, in their friendship, they actually found themselves spending more and more and more time together. And they were getting pretty serious, although they never saw marriage in their future because neither of them ever believed in marriage. And then Mike got deported to Afghanistan, and for over a year was serving in Afghanistan, and they would write to each other, and they would talk to each other, and they learned just how much they actually did depend on each other. 
so much so that when he came back from and survived that year, over a year in Afghanistan, they started to talk about what a life together would look like. Until nine days after he was back, he was on his motorcycle and he was hit by a car and killed. And this reality of where Amy's identity fell moved. A year after this is when I got to hear Amy's story. And she said, I understand that I'm not, that I was never married to Mike. I understand that my identity is not found in Mike or in the things I have or even in the friends I have. But I don't know where to find that new identity. It was just ripped from me just when I was starting to figure it out. Now, most of us don't have experiences that are tragic and sudden. Most of us just have this gentle slide. And it happens to all of us. It happens to a boy who goes to camp every summer. And he hears God clearly at camp. And he comes to know who God is in real ways. And he makes huge transformation at camp. And he brings that home. And his friends and his parents see the difference there. But after a few months of being away from camp and isolated from that experience, all of a sudden the old guy comes out and by Christmas he's wondering if any of the things he experienced at camp were real. Or it happens to the girl who's a leader in her church and in her high school and she's known for her faith and she's known for her generosity to others and she gives and she shares and then she goes to college halfway across the country and halfway across the country, far away from her church, disconnected from her youth leader, disconnected from her parents. She starts to forget who she is and who she is and she comes back home for homecoming her sophomore year. And this girl who is known for her faith and her love is is nowhere to be found. Sometimes it happens through an adult in a marriage, whether it's whether it's a, a man or a woman, all of a sudden they just stop communicating and they drift and then they end up saying, I'm I'm leaving, I'm moving out. And all of these stories happen over time. They're all the same though. There's this drift. And when we find our identity in Jesus, some of us think, okay, I'm great. I understand who Jesus is. I believe in him. And now it's going to be good. Except it's not always good. But that's not, a, that's not a course for despair. It actually should cause us to go, okay, so what do we do? And where do we find answers? And I would hope that we would say the answers are found in Jesus. Are they anywhere in particular? And I would say, yes, they are. They are in these statements that we've looked at over the last few weeks that Jesus calls himself the I am. And we look at the last one today, and in the last I am statement, we find how we keep our identity in Christ. How do we keep ourselves anchored in Christ so that we can continue to find our identity exactly where it needs to be in the truest sense of what Jesus says? So we go to John 15, and we see some invitations that Jesus gives. Invitations to keep our identity in him. 
Remember, he has been with his disciples for three years. He has changed the way that his disciples see God. He's changed the way his disciples see the world, and he's changed the way his disciples see themselves. But Jesus knows that he's going to go away. He's going to give his life, and he's going to leave his disciples to continue this mission and continue to live into what they need to live into if this is going to continue, if God's plans are really going to work. And so he begins his little farewell discourse, as it's sometimes called, as he leaves the upper room, as he leaves the Last Supper, this communion feast that they've, Passover feast that they've done, this Jewish festival, and they walk over to this garden where Jesus is going to pray before he gives his life. And many scholars think along the way they happen to pass a wall around Jerusalem that has vines growing all over it. And Jesus says to his disciples, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit, and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit so they will produce even more fruit. You've already been pruned and purified by the message I've given you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it's severed from the vine, and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Yes, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Those who remain in me, and I in them, produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Anyone who does not remain in me is thrown away like a useless branch and withers. Such branches are gathered into a pit to be burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, you may ask for anything you want, and it will be given. When you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples, and this brings great glory to my Father. I have loved you as the Father has loved me. Now remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. And I've told you these things, so you'll be filled with joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. Can we pray? God, as we look at your word today, as we hear your word today, I pray that we would be able to hear your words. You're alive and well. And you call us to yourself every moment of every day. Not to sit around, but to be useful. So I pray these words that come forth would be yours and would be useful. That we would live into and flow out of your identity and find our identity in you in a way that brings glory to you. In Jesus' name. Well, he's saying here, I think, this invitation to a new way to look at things, a new way of thinking, if you will. And this first invitation really is this invitation to a radical hospitality. It's a new way of thinking that Jesus loves me. Yes, maybe you've heard it before. Jesus loves me. 
Jesus loves me. See, this idea that God was to be feared and God was magnificent is true. The Jews all got it. But when Jesus comes on the scene and he's accessible to people, that he runs to people, that he welcomes people, that he eats with Pharisees, the religious elite, if you will, and he eats with the sinners of the world that are the religious, um, that are the, the leftovers of society. He covers the whole gamut in his hospitality, in his welcome, in his affection for and fondness of and bringing in this radical idea that says if we want to keep our identity in Jesus, then we got to get really comfortable in Jesus' love for us and for others. Maybe you don't sing the song, Jesus loves me, Jesus loves me, yes, Jesus loves me, all the time. But this idea is what he wants for us. This reality is what he wants for us. And this comfort is something that we need to picture that he shows us in this idea of the grapevine that the father's the gardener, that he cuts off branches that aren't useful, that aren't bearing fruit, and that he prunes ones that do. And he does this because of the love that he has for us. And the love that the father demonstrates to Jesus is the love that Jesus demonstrates to us. And he asks us, as one translation says, to make ourselves at home in that love. So I was thinking about this and... I was looking at kids yesterday. Uh, I was just observing from my house that there was lots of kids running around the neighborhood. And there are some kids who will just run through people's yards because they just completely think that that neighbor is okay with it. Maybe you had this growing up, that you knew the exact houses where you could run through the yard and it was clear, free and clear. Didn't matter if they had a little fence, you could just hop that baby. And if you took out a board, they were probably going to be okay too. And if they had a garden, you could probably make it through there as long as you didn't stomp down their plants. And you just knew they were fine with you running through their lawn. And you knew whose neighbors, you could just enter their house like you entered their lawn, right? I had a neighbor, I had great neighbors growing up. They were both really, really old grandpa people, and these people on this side were called the Supernauts. I mean, how would you love that name, the Supernauts? And Mr. and Mrs. Supernaut would never let me in their house except when one of their grandchildren happened to be around that was about my age, and they had the old, well, the new Atari game system at the time. And I remember getting to go in their house. And if you've watched Everybody Loves Raymond and you've seen the very colorful uh, Davenport, I believe is the term, with the plastic over it, they had one of those. And I got to see it and I got to touch it. And I got to sit on their kind of goldish orange carpet that was frizzy and it's coming back in now. Yeah, and I got to feel the controller and the button that, you know, almost didn't even work because it was only used one or two times a year, but they let me in their home once or twice a year. Maybe you had people like that in your neighborhood, the ones that you could run through their lawn, but the ones you could run into their house. But how about those neighbors, probably friends really, that insisted that not only you could run into their house, but that you would not have to call them by Mr. and Mrs. The people that would say, you are always welcome anytime. 
the people who would say, you know, when you were over at their house, maybe you were having dinner together, y- you, you know, you're, you're like a second child to us, or a third child, or a second son, or whatever. You, you're one of us. You know that, right? We love your parents, but you are always welcome. You're one of ours. And, and it was a good thing, because these, this family, they don't yell, fight, or argue, at least not loud, not in ways that scared you. They communicated in ways that made you feel like you were in. This is the radical hospitality that Jesus is talking about. These are the people that you can walk into their house not only anytime you want it, you can open their fridge anytime you want. And there's always something in there that you can help yourself to. This is the kind of radical comfortableness that Jesus wants us to understand of his love. The love the Father has for him and the love that he has for us, and the love that he wants us to share with others. But we've got to get comfortable in it, in the same way that we can go into just a few people's homes and open the fridge and help ourselves. When was the last time you got to open the fridge up in someone else's house and help yourself? What kind of environment are you surrounding yourself in where that can happen? This is the invitation that Jesus ask, is asking us to. And if you can't do that, if, something, if someone or some place can't come to your mind, why is that? When you think about the phrase, Jesus loves me, Jesus loves me, Jesus loves me, can you say that? Can you believe that? Can you live that? If not, why not? I've talked to far too many people who believe that they don't deserve God's love. I've talked to others who have said, if you look around the world, it's such a nasty, nasty place that that God could not be a God of love. Well, maybe they haven't seen the radical hospitality of the ones that are called his. says that he cuts off branches that don't bear fruit. I've always seen this in terms of negative until I really thought about what Jesus is saying here and the rest of what Jesus is saying here and all of a sudden learned it in the context of this idea that we are comfortable in God's love and when we are comfortable in God's love we realize that he cuts off because it's not useful. It's actually taking away energy from the rest of the vine. I had a friend who came over who, who actually understood trees and understood gardening. And he goes, you know, these branches down here, they're really useless. They're, they're really not going to be ones that you're going to keep anyway because they're too low. And this tree is just dying to sprout up. And he said, look, there's almost no growth at the top that's new, that's green. And so he, he said, you know, may I? And he cut off these branches. I'm like, oh. It was only a two-year-old tree. And sure enough, the next fall, the, in six months, this tree tripled in size. And the branches at the top were filled with these green sprouts of, of, of life because these lower branches were taken away from the growth of the tree. Well, it, it was cut off for the good of the tree. In, in this fruit that he prunes to produce more fruit, 
It's because he knows what he's doing. When we hand God the pruning shears to our life, it's because he loves us and he knows what he's doing. Will you put yourself in an environment of radical hospitality and believe that the people around you and that the God who loves you knows what he's doing. This is the first invitation. And maybe for you, this is the biggest one. You just need to hear that actually Jesus does love you. He says that, that he made us. It says that he shaped us. The word says that he loves us, that he chose us that he calls us, that he forgives us, that he appoints us, that he gives his life for us, and that he sends us. Maybe you just need to hear those every day this week. Spend time in that. Maybe the radical environment that you need to put yourself in is just to surround yourself with people you know get you. Or you hope they'll get you, so you'll risk putting yourself into an environment like that. The second invitation I see here is this invitation to a new way, not just of thinking that Jesus does love us, but this new way of being. This new way of being that says that we are the branches in verse 5. Jesus says, I'm the vine, and he calls us the branches. This new way of thinking that says, the only way I have life is to stay connected to Jesus. Literally, if I am cut off from my life source, I have no source of life. This idea that that we have to depend on God, depend on Jesus for all things. This reality that would say, apart from me, you can do nothing. I had a mentor who, who used to read that to me and say, you know, what part of nothing don't we get? sort of an all-encompassing word. Maybe use it when you're really frustrated with someone you really care about. Everything's going wrong. You can't do anything right. Nothing works that you're doing. And I believe that's what Jesus is saying. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I mean, think about the radical hospitality that we just talked about. Think about the fact that there would be streams of people going into your house and opening the refrigerator, especially if you have any neighborhood kids that are like, oh, I don't know, 12 to 15-year-old boys. You know that your fridge is going to be empty unless it magically can produce food because they just eat four times their body weight. Is that a good thing or is that a tiring thing? Or, you know, that four-year-old boy that, that just... Loves to ask the questions. Last week it was, Hey, will you put some batteries in this remote control car so that I can play with it next time you come over? I come over? Yeah, yeah, totally, because I want to practice radical hospitality. But radical hospitality can be really tiring. And so Jesus says, Yeah. If you don't stay in constant connection with me, 
you can't do it. You can't make it. You have to be part of this life source. And, and this whole idea of cutting off, if, if you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that is thrown away and withers. These, these vines that would grow all over, all over Jerusalem, they're such a soft wood that they can't really support themselves. They've got to cling on to something. But if they're cut off, they're really not useful for anything. I mean, even in the, in the Jewish rabbinical um, regulations for their festivals, they would require these, these offerings of firewood be brought in. So the people, it's kind of like a tax. You've got to bring in firewood because we have to have all these sacrifices. So bring in all the wood. And it said explicitly, do not bring vine wood. It is not good for anything. It's so soft that it will not burn in the offering fires. The only hope we have to get rid of this is to have this huge bonfire and to throw it in there because that'll get hot enough and it will finally disintegrate this good-for-nothing wood. This is not a picture where God is throwing us out and saying this is a, fi- this is a picture of eternal damnation. This is just saying, like he says in other places, if you're salt and your salt loses its saltiness, it can't preserve anything. Why would you put it on? If this wood can't be used for anything, then we've just got to toss it. God loves you. God loves me. But if we can't give, if we can't live into what Jesus calls us to, he's going to put us on the sidelines. That's not his intent. His intent is to prune. But it takes us to stay connected because sometimes it hurts when we get pruned. It hurts when we get cut. We've got to remember the first thing. Oh yeah, Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. And this pruning and cutting is so that I can be more fruitful, so that you can be more fruitful, so that you can see more of God in your life. But it takes this idea that we have to become attached. Like the four-year-old boy that just comes around every day to say hi. <coughs> to ask me to put remote control batteries in a remote control car. Who's that person in your life that just continues to come around? Who just wants to be attached to you? And maybe that's a picture that God wants to give you to be attached to Jesus. One translation says for this, make yourselves at home in me, Jesus says, and my words at home in you. And then when you talk to me, your will will be so in with my will that whatever you ask for is what I want anyway. I'll give it to you. It's an intimate communication. It's a, it's a thoughtful communication So what might this look like for you to stay connected to Jesus? If this is the invitation that you need to take practically, what does that look like? I think it looks like um, a couple different options. One of them might be prayer on the hour. This is where you pray one to three minutes on the hour, every hour that you're awake, and it's just a reminder that God is with you. It's very effective for some people. 
Another ancient tradition that's been effective in my life, and I know some people use it around here, is this idea of, it's called a prayer of examine. It's just a, a daily evening prayer where you, you walk through a series of um, guided things. If you want it, I'll send it to you. It's kind of to look at what happened in the day, the good and the bad, to give it to God, If you want to confess that, it's to confess that it's not to analyze it. It's not to give yourself a psychiatric appointment. It's just to say, hey, this is where I was with you and I was connected to you. And this is where I wasn't. And then giving that to God, asking for strength for another day and thanking him for the day that you had in connection with him. So those are two ways that you can do this on your own. But as a church, we are looking at all the ways that we connect. Part of the reason we're giving out this survey is to say, how can we continue to connect and grow with each person that calls restoration their home and their family? And so on Sunday mornings, we've been doing coffee and bagels. And we don't just do that because we're like, oh, I bet some people are hungry and they'd really like coffee. We do that because just like that refrigerator picture, When you bring food into a room, it gives us this chance to connect. It gives us this chance to mingle. It gives us this chance to make room for each other. We do a Discover Restoration Lunch that's like a one-step introduction to saying, this is who we are, this is what we're about, do you want to be involved? Then we go, next month we'll have a fellowship dinner, and we'll talk about just one more step outside the building to make connection and conversation. And by then we hope to have... Uh, the plans that we're looking at for our connections and life groups and formation and outreach, how we have some ideas that, that God has brought through the last few weeks of saying, hey, I think there's, a, there's maybe a new plan and this new way to connect and grow together. And we'll, we'll have those, I believe, for us in a few weeks for that fellowship dinner. These are all ways that we can connect and grow. Finally, though, the last invitation is not just a new way of thinking and a new way of seeing, this is a new, or a new way of being, it's a new way of doing. Jesus says, if you love me, and you remain in me, you'll obey my commands. Now, I don't know the last time you were told what to do, how much you enjoyed that, but that's what he's saying. If you love me, you'll obey my commands. See, we just, we just moved, and we have this amazing lawn, or this amazing potential for lawn. There's gardens, there's vegetable gardens with trellises already built in, and, and boxes so you can keep each one of these separate. And we have two apple trees. And if, you've, if you are a Honeycrisp apple person, you know that like this time of the year is the greatest time of the year because these things are savory, they are sweet, they are so crisp that they actually crunch in your mouth. It's, it's, it's like a little bit of heaven every day. And I have two trees in my yard. I'm not yet sure if they're Honeycrisp apples because there was only 11 apples and, and seven of them were kind of rotted. I'll just say they're rotted. They had little holes in them and I'm like, ooh. And the, the leaves didn't look very good. And then when I walked around the vegetable gardens, it looked more like a vegetable jungle. I'm not even sure what's a weed and what's not a weed. And then I actually looked around my lawn and I'm telling you, creeping Charlie and dandelions that have those nasty thorns on them, these are, have infested this lawn. Well, no one lived in this place for a couple years. No one took care of this, this lawn for two years. And my wife 
seeing the distress on my face as I'm kind of analyzing the situation, you know what my thoughtful, supportive, intelligent wife says? She says, um, maybe we should get a master gardener to come in or a professional lawn service to help us out with this. Isn't that supportive and intelligent? And completely offensive to someone who knows, who knows, like, you know, I'm a little bit sensitive and emotional more than the average adult male, and I don't have super strength, so there's a couple weeds that are like over an inch and a half thick, and I can't really pull them out just with my own strength, but I am telling you, I do not have to be an expert in gardening to know I got to get those weeds out, I got to figure out what kind of vegetables those are, and I need to figure out how to prune that, that apple tree, and darn it, I'll do it. Now, it kind of sounds a little ridiculous, right? I hope so, because it was supposed to. But some of us make the exact same remarks to Jesus, who's the master gardener of life. Think about it. We say we want Jesus to be all in in our life, that we want to surrender our life to him and trust him with everything we are. But if we're completely honest, deep down inside, we just doubt if Jesus really cares as much as we do about our life or if he's capable of securing the happiness that we so want. And this is just grass in my yard. These aren't the dreams of my life. It's just a house. Think about the dreams of your life, whether they're for people or whether they're for you and your goals, do you really totally surrender those completely to the one who's the master gardener of life? Remember, the pruning is for growth. It starts in the beginning to say, this is so you will bear fruit. This is so you'll bear more fruit. This is so you'll bear much fruit. And much fruit brings glory to God. It honors him. It shows the world that, see, I can take this and I can make this. It, if that master gardener came in, it would be like, wow, look what you did to this weed-infested lawn. That's amazing. And I'm not saying our lives have weed infestation. But sometimes they do. This invitation for us to live in a new way of doing, for us to let Jesus be the master gardener of our life, is this invitation to say, God, your way is the best way, and so I'll obey it. Your words, I'll trust. Your patterns, I'll believe in. When we don't do this, it's sort of like hiring the master gardener to come out to my wicked lawn and then listening to everything they say and not doing any of it. Or like paying a tutor to help you with advanced math and they give you the steps and then you don't do it that way. Or you go to the gym and you hire a personal trainer and then you sit on the couch instead of following their recommendations. Like those people we'd say are all experts, so we'd listen to them. And Jesus is the expert of if, if Jesus isn't life, then what he did isn't worth following. And yet, for thousands of years, millions of people have patterned their life after him. Because he is the way to life.
What does it look like for us to live into this new way of doing, this obeying? I think it might look like serving people. It's as simple as joining a ministry team or volunteering in your city or at your workplace or around your schools and giving a little bit of your time, God's time, to people who need it. To remind us that Jesus came to serve, not be served. That our life isn't really about a fancy lawn. It's really about the people that surround you, that need that life. That, that serving helps you recall your identity in him. And the result is that God is known, that he's honored, that we know ourselves, that people are loved in radical ways. And guess what? When we do that, God promises that we'll have joy, a joy that comes out all the time, more and more. This couldn't have been more evident on Friday night. And I'm going to compose myself for a second. So why don't you think about the invitation that God might be putting on your heart? Which of these things do you need to hear? To a new way of of seeing radical hospitality? To a new way of being and staying connected to Jesus? Or a new way of doing, of truly obeying and loving. See, on Friday night, we, we went to one of the many football games that were going around, these homecoming games. And uh, the one that we went to was Rosemont versus Farmington. And so when we came up to the stands, we knew, we knew that we were supposed to wear navy and gold because that was the Rosemont colors. That's the team that we were going to support. Um, and so we were really confused, well, not so confused, when we saw, like, bright orange on the other side of the stadium because Farmington is bright orange. And so we, we were like, well, that's, that's that. Yay for, look at all those student supporters. And then we went to the other side, and we were a little confused because the entire student side of Rosemont is filled with bright orange and, 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 and then some lime green. And we're like, whoa, I knew the colors were, you know, navy and yellow, but... I guess orange was the, or green was the accent color. Well, what is this lime green really about? That just doesn't seem to fit in here. And so I didn't think much of it because, you know, I just kind of realized, well, maybe I'm out of it. Maybe students do things that, you know, we just think are weird and stuff. But then we get to the homecoming coronation, and I'm expecting just a few people to be in fancy dresses or in suits or anything. And no, like, not only are they not in that, half of the homecoming court is in lime green and bright orange. And I'm completely confused again. Then the band comes out, and, and it was phenomenal. They, they won state. I was impressed. They had these beautiful Navy outfits, these band uniforms that they were all in sync, except that they had tape. They had bright orange and lime green duct tape all over their instruments. It looked tacky. It looked weird. I'm like, why are you doing this? And then... And then the announcer says, on, on November 20th, 2010, Kaylee so-and-so was killed tragically. She died. She'd been a senior this year. And her two, two favorite colors 
were bright orange and lime green. And for four and a half years, the community, the school, ultimately her class, they have continued to wear bright orange and lime green with this picture of Team Kaylee. Because she loved her school, she loved her friends. And it continues. And he said, and a big shout out to Farmington High School, whose entire student section said, it's more important to identify with Team Kaylee than whether our football team wins or loses. This, friends, is a picture of us being the vine and the branches when we remain connected to Jesus, when we sit in radical hospitality, a memory of a girl who died four and a half years ago lives on. A memory. Who, Lord willing, I didn't know this girl, but Lord willing, she's in heaven with Jesus. And we have a Savior who's alive and well, who rose from the dead. Who doesn't have to be a memory living on? Maybe it's as simple as putting on a lime green t-shirt or a bright orange pair of shorts that are way too tight. Maybe we shouldn't do that. But maybe that's what it means to stay connected to Jesus. Can you imagine the transformation that would happen? I know two communities that are being transformed by Team Kaylee. What if we all were Team Jesus? What kind of transformation would happen in your home, in your work, in our cities, and in our schools? This is why we're here, friends. This is what restoration means. Let's live it. Can you pray with me? God, I think if we're here, we would say that we do want to see hope brought into dark places and we would want to bring hope to a broken world. And yet the reality is that that radical hospitality and this radical idea that Jesus loves us and that we have access to him at any moment of any day and that we're to radically love others is is hard. But you wouldn't give us this, this invitation, God, if you didn't give us the power. And I thank you that, that through the resurrection that you've given us the Holy Spirit and that we have your Spirit with us now and we have access and ability to walk into each of these invitations and live in them. If hundreds of high school students can wear bright orange and lime green, God, I know that your power can live through us. Speak to us about how we need to live, about where we need to stay, and about what we need to do. Amen.